Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your Audi HD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Welcome to my guest, Pasha Marlowe. I am super excited to have her here. We found each other on the internet and we have a lot of overlapping content. And I was just on her podcast, Neuroqueering, which you should definitely check out. And we'll link that episode here as well. And she also is ADHD. And we're going to dive into that term in just a second. Uh, but just this big, you know, queer neurodivergent bubble and figuring out all of our identities within that. And anything else you'd like to add about yourself and how you think about yourself at this moment in the world? At this moment in the world, I'm feeling nuanced beyond all the stinking labels. Love it. That's why I like to ask that. I feel, I don't know, we all have these little bio blurbs that we're used to. And at the same time, my identity feels so flexible and hard to pin down in a lot of ways. So let's jump into that. Uh, I mean, I both the term neuroqueer may not be familiar to people if you want to define that for folks, because it's a term I love and use. It is. And it's such an expansive term. It's actually hard to define it. Like it's mm-hmm. hard to pin it down to one definition, but I'd like to see it as I say, it's beyond the intersection of neurodiversity and queerness. It's about queering and questioning all norms. Uh, neuronormativity, heteronormativity, social norms, gender norms, fill in the blank norms. And it's an expansiveness that I feel like encompasses like all that we are, not just how we think, like our different brains. And a lot of times I feel like neurodivergence or neurodiversity are like talking about, I think they're talking about brains, but I think it expands more into our body minds, how we embody our neurodivergence, how we embody our sexuality. Uh, and, and this is why nuances just feels so good to me right now, because every day I feel like I want to use a different like label or identity. And sometimes I don't want to use any none resonate with me and all do at the same time. So it's really just a, I know it sounds very wishy-washy, but it's, it's expansive as a verb. Um, but also like I am neuroqueer, like as a noun, I think it just works. It just is like this neurodivergent queer flexible being. And I love that ability to use it as a verb because again, like all the neurodivergent labels, those are just sort of noun labels, right? This is who you are. This is an identity. And then queering or neuroqueering is this active, you know, fucking with the system approach and like doing stuff with what we've been given. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. Like if we could be like ADHDing, are we ADHD? (laughs) We turn it into a verb. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Playful. And that's the other thing with neuroqueering and, and the book that I always refer back to when I, when I think about neuroqueering is neuroqueer heresies, uh, by Dr. Nick Walker. And she really values also play and, and the, um, the fact that, that we could be fluid and and playful and and joyful and creative while being activists. Well, you know what I mean? Like there's that there's that both and which I really like. Yeah. 
Oh, I love that. And this is not really why we're here, but I'm so obsessed with how activists can stay with the work and not just burn out. And I think that that sense of joy and fun and play is something that we almost never talk about in relation to changing the world. Yeah, I think it's important to keep us refueled and focused. And, you know, sometimes it's honoring our not just our abilities, but our capacity. I believe Sony Brilliant, like you said that one day. <laughs> and um, and thinking, okay, well, today, today I need to refuel and go into zombie mode or just play with my kids on the beach or whatever it is, because tomorrow I'll have more energy to go out and fight the good fight and be an activist and and you know and serve my community <clears throat> and and assumingly there's somebody else who has the energy and capacity today and so we take turns and I'd like to think of it more that way rather than just a few people getting depleted yeah totally I love that so just before we hopped on we were just starting to talk about ADHD as a term, as a sort of combined term, which obviously it's in the title of the podcast. So <laughs> it's a term that I use and I use to describe myself. And just what are your thoughts about that right now? Because I feel like you were just starting to dive in and I was like, no, no, let's talk, let's record. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Because uh, I want to be accurate. Uh, ADHD and autism combined is, is usually how people see ADHD and some people say autistic ADHD -er, uh, and I'm sure there's many other ways, but the resistance came up when I was starting to hear people use neurospicy a lot and they still do. And, um, and, and honestly, when I first heard it, I'm like, yeah, that's so much more fun. Like neurospicy is more fun to say than neurodivergent, you know, and it kind of shows our fire and our creativity. Um, but it, then it started reminding me of the folks who want to say neurodivert, like I'm neurodiverse instead of saying I'm neurodivergent because neurodiverse sounds better. I'm like, okay, well now we're kind of messing with the, what it means and these words matter. And, and in trying to be very inclusive, I don't want us to the truth of it and sometimes the the real challenges and disabilities around being neurodivergent by making it so silly with neurospicy so that was kind of where i was coming from and then i was thinking well is ADHD a term or is, are we just being like are we just kind of making it an acronym to make it easier for ourselves like text language making it like ADHD because we don't want to write out you know autistic ADHD or so i i did i went back and forth on it a lot and i i i've settled into using it yes it is you know, easier, but I feel like it has an empowerment kind of fuck you to the system in that I am autistic, I am ADHD and ADHD has deficient and disorder in it. And it still does with the little you, but it's not the term and the label that was given, which I think is inaccurate. And I think it's pathologizing. And I think it does a disservice to our community, the ADHD community to use deficiency and disorder in the name. And so I feel like it's a little bit of a reclamation. That's my <laughs> current today standpoint. I like that. Yeah. Well, and another interesting thing that I hadn't really, well, that I hadn't thought about in exactly this way is that because it's sort of hiding the autistic part mm. in a way, right? And we're not saying mm -hmm. autistic. And I certainly in my experience, autism is much, much more stigmatized and less understood mm. broadly or less understood correctly. And mm. the term is 
kind of implicitly, like, if you know what it is, you know what it is. But if you look at that, if you glance at that, and especially ironically for people with ADHD, if they glance at that and they don't know what the U means, they might just interpret it as ADHD and think it's either misspelled or right. Like there's, it's almost a little cue to those who are already in the know. You kind of have to know what it is. I don't think that you would necessarily look at ADHD and assume autism was what the AU meant. That's very true that it, that it is going to be only known by the community. And then is there the thought that it's an ableist way to define autism and ADHD if it isn't saying autism out? Like, so yeah. Yeah. Which is something I'm very passionate about is like people being out and Mm -hmm. talking about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well then more reason to, I guess, keep um, declaring what it, what it means. I'm, I'm, equally as depending on the day proud of and delighted by my autism as i am my adhd and then i'll just say this morning i was pissed off at my autism because it threw (laughs) me into a major sensory meltdown and i was like "Fuck you autism i just like was mad at it and so anyhow i just think it's a it's a really unique dynamic and whenever i do a TikTok or video on adhd couples or couple dynamics people are like what? Like, how on earth did you just define the paradox and the complications and the and the nuances of this combination? Like, are you in my bedroom? They get really freaked out, and which validates me. But it's it's not hard for me to because it's me. It's my bedroom. <laughs> it's where I live, and so. Uh, but it's unique. It's a unique um, combination. Yeah. Oh yeah. And we haven't touched on this yet. That part of what you do, like your particular expertise is around relationships and couples and helping neurodivergent couples. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I do individual couples and group coaching for probably mostly ADHD people, but you know, neurodivergent in general, and I include trauma and neurodivergence. And I know some people don't, but I'm just including that. Totally. No, CPTSD definitely is, is neurodivergence. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, um, so sometimes folks will come to my sessions or groups and just like, I know I'm neurodivergent. I have a lifetime of trauma, but I don't have a formal diagnosis to what, to which I say like, fine, like fine. If ever, never you do whatever it's fine. Um, I highly honor self-diagnosis and lived experience and self-discovery and actualization of the one of the things I really enjoy is doing couples work because I think it's highly effective when you are making change that your partner knows about it and is involved and maybe even changing at the same pace and rate, which is often a problem. Like one of us decides to be really growth minded and learn new things and get all curious and the other person's not. That is often a big challenge or one person's finally stepping into their identity uh, or just their awareness of their neurodivergence and they want more compassion and empathy from their partner. So, uh, it's really, it's really fun work. And, um, and I see the change happen so much faster with couples work. I love doing the individual work and I love the group work too. That's, that's a really great, um, tool as well. But when there's a relationship issue or any intimacy issues or infidelity issues, um, communication issues, it's really helpful to have both people in the system in the room. Totally. And to explicitly name part of what you're talking about, it's integrating, right? Like you can learn things for yourself, but I always think of stuff coming up in interpersonal relationships as the boss fight version of what I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> like I can learn how to, you know, self-regulate and feel better and blah, blah, blah. And then something triggers, you know, a childhood 
trauma related thing with a person and my brain is just like, oh, I, never mind. All my skills are gone. I'm in, you know, I'm fully off in trauma land. And uh, yeah, your partner knowing that that's happening or even that you're trying to do this stuff, I feel like is so important because if they don't know that you're making an effort and that this is hard for you and that you're experiencing what you're experiencing, you know, they're just assuming that you're doing it on purpose because we're all the main character in our own heads. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and something you said reminded me of, you know, let's say we're having a panic attack or we're in a, a meltdown or in sensory overload, you know, if our partner very lovingly, but unknowingly, you know, just says, you know, just calm down, just, you know, take some deep breaths, which is impossible. Oh my God, the rage in, the in my body right now. Right. Just, just, oh, the PDA. <laughs> PDA. And that's not the best way to handle this. Right. And so, and yet we could, I could, teach yoga and teach breathing and teach trauma work. But in the moment, like this morning, when I was having my uh, big, big time sensory overload meltdown, I could not remember to breathe. I could not remember to stay present in the moment. And had I had a partner who could have said something like, you know, what do you see? Like name five things you see. Um, you know, what do you hear? So let's step outside, um, but not say just calm down or just take a deep breath. Uh, or what are you so upset about? Like, just like the questions, right? that's not helpful. And so, um, yeah, it's really helpful to have the language, the, the shared language in that and the trauma informed work and knowing what the triggers are like sharing each other's you know triggers so that you can tend to it more and um and just coming in with a lot more generosity and empathy and patience um and and meeting your partner with a little bit more grace <laughs> both ways not just like the you know if there is a neurotypical partner which usually there isn't by the way in a neurodivergent relationship there's usually mm -hmm. two um neurodivergent people living together but um but really ha having a, a greater understanding of those sensitivities you know if you say i can't even sit at the dinner table with you because you because i can't even stand chewing like i can't even eat dinner with you. and the next day you can or it's like that 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 fact that you can be really uh, hypersensitive one day and and then have it change the next day like it makes no sense to somebody who isn't aware that that's part of it yeah my nesting partner is also on the spectrum but does not have adhd so we have this really interesting dynamic where you know for example if one of us is feeling overloaded and just says hey i just need to go be alone for a while the other one is always 100 on board with that but when I'm having a more ADHD specific problem, sometimes my partner is like, they just don't get it yeah. sort of intrinsically. I always have to explain it. And sometimes that's really hard to even know how to explain it. Right. And it, um, have you heard of double empathy? I have, but go ahead and describe it. <laughs> well, it started where, because people were assuming that autistic people weren't empathetic, which is so not true, you know, mm -hmm. but two autistic people are going to communicate more clearly um, than an autistic person or a typical person, just as two ADHD people are going to communicate like, oh, I get you back and forth. Um, and so the double empathy pro problem just kind of shows that the, that it's not that autistic people do not communicate well. It's just that we're communicating differently. And so if you have somebody who's autistic or, or ADHD and somebody who's not, it's just a different, it's a different language. It's not that one person is, you know, wrong or the problem or, uh, you know, not working hard enough to explain. 
it's like that telephone tag game we played when we were little, when we would say something to the person next to us ear, by the time we got to the last person, it was different. You're like, what? It's like we filter it through our own hearing and also experience. Yeah. We actually had a really funny conversation the other day where we tried to have a serious conversation way too late at night. Like we were both too tired <laughs> and partway in, we both like, neither of us was super upset yet, but we both were just like, we're not having the same conversation. We agreed. We were both just like, we are not talking about the same thing. We're literally talking about two different things. And then somehow proceeded to get mad anyway, because it was just too late. We should not have been having that conversation at that time. But it was just really funny because I was like, we both in a, in a intellectual way understand that th this is not useful. Like this is not working. And it would have been nice if we could have just ejected quickly instead of then being like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Let's just keep walking into the keep woods. In the of, yeah. I think, I think calling out is a really good technique because that happens a lot, you know, naming it, calling, we're doing that thing where we're having the same conversation, but talking about two different things, uh, or I'll talk about patterns a lot with couples, you know, when you start to get into a pattern, it repeats and repeats and repeats, like, where can you interrupt it? And in a situation like that, sometimes it's interjecting humor or just naming it. And maybe it's a maybe it's a nickname that you have of this thing that you do where you're talking about two different things. Um, because yeah, pushing and trying harder, <laughs> it usually doesn't work, especially at night. It, it did not work. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, this is a topic that I feel like would be really, really helpful for people and would have been really, really helpful for me a few years ago, which is as you're starting to, especially if you have trauma and especially if you have relational trauma, which most people with trauma do have relational trauma, whether it was parents or, you know, partners, whatever there, as you're starting to work through all your stuff, there's two things that happen. One, there are people in your life who are actually doing some of the same patterns that you were accustomed to before. So there's actual potentially abusive behavior, which again, doesn't necessarily mean the person is quote an abuser, but you know, there might be some of these patterns in existence. And then the other thing that happens, I think is that we get triggered around those things. If somebody's doing something that reminds us of those things, whether or not they're actually doing the behavior. And so what I'd be really, really curious to hear you talk about from your perspective and expertise is how do we navigate these relational things especially the latter where people are triggering us, but they're not necessarily abusive. Like how do we start to piece apart whether somebody is actually doing an abusive behavior or just if it's like triggering our own neurodivergent trauma, basically around having been told repeatedly that we are the problem. Right. I think of it in terms of um, time travel. And sometimes we can be in both places at once. We're at the dishwasher and our partner's telling us to unload the dishwasher, but we're also in childhood where our father was telling us to unload the dishwasher and we were worried there'd be punishment if we didn't or shame. And so we could be both places at once. And sometimes I'll even say, I'm doing that time travel thing where I'm mad at you, but I'm, I think I'm mad at you because I'm triggered into that fear space from long ago. And so I'm responding in a way that you probably think is bigger than it should be. Like I'm overreacting but it's cumulative because I'm bringing in the junk from the past. So sometimes I'll just use words like that with my partner. Or I'll suggest this for, for, and sometimes it's about a tone. It's not about the words, but especially a parental tone and the whole parent child dynamic comes in where if somebody's, are you sitting down again? Whatever. It's like, Oh, like something about that tone or that pitch or the way you said those words is now triggering me back to 
old old times um old traumas and so is there another way we could say that another tone another different words um could you stand like even my my mom would always say the thing that made me hurt the most on her way out the room like on her way out the door in like, like a passive aggressive way and so when my partner talks to me about things that i'm that they want to work on or things they want me to do i ask them to stand like at not over me not behind me not on the way out but like in front of me and sit down like on the couch or wherever i am with eye contact like equal level because i don't like that feeling of being intimidated i guess and so it's sometimes the nuances go figure the nuances again of what's the trigger it's not always the the action or the behavior but the tone does that make sense yeah and i know i mean for myself i keep having new triggers come up like things i didn't know were triggers <laughs> so you know it's not it's like in my experience it's very hard to identify what triggers are until they've happened until you look at it yeah. and go oh whoops like you know that's what that was referring to right like they're not just at the surface uh how did you figure out like in the example you just gave how did you figure out that that was what you needed in that mm. type of interaction yeah it um there'll be something that makes me feel trapped and this and i think this probably will respect folks with the kind of I, who identify with PDA uh, might respond to this a little bit more, but there's something that makes me feel panic, like my autonomy or my freedoms being taken away, uh, whether I'm being asked to do a task or even just there's a judgment or criticism of any kind. And so I, I needed the, the feeling of being on equal ground and safety, like safety first, psychological safety first before anything. And to your point that you don't know that there's a trigger until it happens like for instance the other day i was doing laundry in the basement and my uh nesting partner is a good term because it's like my soon-to-be ex closed the basement door and i did not know that i had a trauma trigger of being apparently locked in the basement or like scared of the dark and all that the second that door closed like I was time traveling back to a time I didn't remember. And the rage that I showed him, unknowing, he didn't even know I was in the basement. He didn't know I would be scared of locking even if I knew I was in the basement. And I was so rageful to him and, and frankly, pretty mean. And I later had to step back and be like, what the heck happened? And then, and then this is hard for us, but to then say, I don't know why I responded that way. And, um, I, I know that to you, it felt like, you know, unnecessary perhaps, but, um, but I felt, I felt like I was under threat, you know, I felt in danger. And then when I'm fearful, it comes out as anger. And then I'm going to scream and swear and throw things, even though that's not what I wanted to do. It's like, it just wasn't a reflex. And so I'll, I'll come back later and say that. Um, but it's always a feeling in my body of, um, of knowing that something isn't right. Something about this interaction isn't feeling good. Something about this interaction is reminding me of something. And, and if you have a good relationship, you're like, I have no idea why it's bothering me that you're standing like that with your hand over your head, but it is like, I don't know why, but, and then allowing ourselves to ask for 
these accommodations. Um, and I call it access intimacy. I don't know. I love this term. It's like access intimacy, like saying, oh, I like that. Oh gosh. So like something about the way you're standing is, is making me nervous. I'd rather, can we go sit in another room? And then that liberates the other person to be able to say, yeah. And I'd like it if we, you know, maybe didn't sit with our arms crossed, or I'd like it if maybe we could sit with tea, you know, like, like it opens up the conversation for each person, neurodivergent or not, to say what would make them feel safer and more comfortable as we talk through what is likely a, a conflict of some sort. Yeah. And that, I mean, what you're describing sounds so simple, but it's not right. No. It, it, once the body is kicked into trauma gear or just reactive, right. Even if it's just, you know, on the sensory meltdown side of things, which is not necessarily, not a trauma response, but it's a, that type of thing where you feel like the body has just taken over and now you're going down this road. Right. And it feels very out of control. The one meta point I kind of want to make about this is I feel like when you go the therapy route, which I have for 15 years and I love therapy and I, you know, recommend it to anybody who wants it, that approach is basically you are better or you are healed when you stop having these reactions. Like when you stop feeling like your body is just taking over. And part of the reason I've really enjoyed a lot of somatic approaches or, you know, other kind of more body-based things is even though I've healed an enormous amount of trauma, there's a lot of shit still in my body and it's not going away. I don't know that these reactions will ever go away. And so I really want to unshame for people this reactiveness and this responsiveness. And, you know, you like both of us in the last week have both had, and in my case, it was this conversation where I got super triggered, you know, late at night. Um, and I can talk about that more, but basically we've both had in the last week, a situation where we had a totally outsized emotional response to a small thing. We both have a lot of tools. We've both done a lot of work. We help other people do this work and our bodies are still having these responses. Yes. And I just really want to normalize that because the goal is not to make the body non-responsive because that's a dead body. Mm -hmm. I so agree. And, and that is, even though we're, we're trained in this and we help like, I'm like 53 years, I can't remember my own tools. Are you kidding me? So I know that my cognitive mind and my therapy talking mind is not going to work. So even though it was bloody hot and humid out, I went outside and moved a little bit and i know i have to like sweat or jump in a cold shower or do something very sensory uh like extreme hot or cold um or or and and get back into the my that is the only way i've ever been able to get through uh, a trauma trigger or a panic attack or a meltdown um, it's never been through words. It's never been through words. So yeah, I agree with you. Talk therapy only goes so far. And I think some people think of somatic healing as, oh, great. They're going to tell me to focus on my breathing or meditate or dance. Like, and it, and if none of those things sound at all aligned, like for you, somatic healing might be rollerblading or hula hooping or pickleball or archery. Like it literally doesn't matter. I think it's just doing something in your body knitting. I have so many clients who knit and they're like furiously knit. <laughs> Love it. And something in your body to go back to the relational thing too, that, you know, we get into these habits with, especially people who you live with, right? Because you have all these habits around your home life and where you have these conversations and, you know, the places where you sit together, all these things, like it can be 
so, so helpful to just change where and and how your body is moving when you're having, like go on a walk and have the conversation. Yeah. Go get ice cream and have the conversation. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. But you're right. Even switching to a different room or getting a different temperature or getting a different texture in the room or holding your animal. If you have a dog or holding your stuffed animal, if you don't have a live animal, like changing it up. So you're not in that same exact response, feeling like you're repeating the same argument over and over in the same way over and over year after year. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to, I do want to give this little story example to finish out the, what I was talking about with this conversation. So we started having this conversation and the funny thing was we had just said, like, both of us were like vaguely horny and we were like, do we want to have sex? We were like, nah, we're both too tired. Okay. New rule that we have now post this conversation. If we're too tired to have sex, we're too tired to have a big conversation. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. New relationship rule that we have. Awesome. Um, Awesome. But basically my partner was like, oh, hey, I just have this thing that's been bothering me. It's not a big deal. So in my mind, we're, I'm like, okay, we're just going to have this little conversation that's not a big deal. And then it turned out that it was a bigger emotional deal for them than I realized. So part of it for me was a transition problem because I thought we were having a one kind of conversation. And then a little bit later learned, oh, we're having a different kind of conversation, which by the way, I would have said no to. So I know they weren't trying to trick me, but that was kind of how it felt in the moment. Yeah. And then it was late. You know, I was tired. I'm already laying down. And one of my, one of my body's particular trauma responses is around this because of particular things that happened in specific states that I was in as a child, like if my body feels too relaxed and also triggered at the same time, I get super, super triggered. I'm like, oh shit. Like that's when my body goes into full panic mode. So I started to have a full on like trauma response, you know, feeling really panicky. My partner thought it was because they were expressing emotions to me. So they were getting upset about that. And I was like, no, no, I'm having a trauma response. Like, I, you know, and I, but I was so triggered that I couldn't even express exactly what was happening. Like I I was starting to get to that point where I was like having trouble expressing what was happening. So I was like, I need to go, like, I need to go downstairs and just like go regulate. So turned out I was so triggered that it took me like three hours to calm myself down. I then went to bed at like three. (laughs) So I was like, okay, let's not do that again. But the part of the reason I wanted to share that story is because, you know, what you were saying about like doing physical stuff, going outside, like those are the things that I know would have worked faster I know there are things I could have done that would have worked faster, but because I was already late and I was in this really strong trauma response and it was really hard for me to access information or knowledge or think through what might work. I was like, you know, what's going to work is just going and watching TV and like laying down on the couch. So that's I'm just going to say, that's a good time for TikTok. Yep. <laughs> I literally just watched TV for three hours and it calmed me down. And I just wanted to say that like, it's, this is not just about using the perfect tool all of the time, because when we're in this state, we don't have access to the tools and we just need to do what works. And I probably could have, you know, after one episode checked in with myself and like, okay, what do I need? And like, try to be really good about it. But I also wanted to bring up that because of my PDA stuff, the persistent drive for autonomy stuff, part of what happens when I'm this triggered or if I've already gone over the edge into a meltdown or panic attack or whatever, is that I'm incredibly resistant to the tools that are effective and fast. I just want to do the stuff that's easy and requires nothing of me. I love that. And I love that, that we're de-shaming, like go watch a show, like go watch TikTok. In that situation you were talking to about with your, with your partner, I was thinking, yeah, you're, you're lying down. Like the last thing you want to do is get up and 
move or take a cold shower or yep. go walk outside you want to sleep and your partner's triggered and so often i'll work with couples where they're like i mean i'm busy working on my own trauma triggers and then she's triggered all the time and like who's trigger trauma trigger is more important right now like like we're both just triggering each other and um and then they'll be it'll ebb and flow we're just like well, lately, you know, she's been triggered in her trauma all this time, and I don't feel comfortable bringing something up because they're really stressed, and I want to be compassionate to the fact that they're really stressed. But, uh, but I'm having my own stuff. That that dynamic happens a lot. But I wonder if bringing in like the the TV and the almost distraction from it, like like sending, even though you're laying there next to each other, like if you had sent each other, whether it's a, a meme or a, a funny animal picture or something of how you felt, like some, is there some way to kind of like communicate in a fun, silly way that pulls herself out of the conversation and the trauma? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just wondering if there's ways that we can use our technology and in good fun ways, because it's easy. And sometimes I'll, t I'll text my friend how I'm feeling and I'll like, it'll be a picture of like, like dog falling out of a tree or something like, ah, you know, I just wonder if there's different creative ways that we can think while we're not able to move our bodies or when we're too tired to move our bodies, how can we get into our body somehow or out of our head? Um, yeah. 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 Laughter and humor tends to be a really good tool. Uh, the other day I asked a client to think of a, a joke or a jingle when they're just feeling like they don't have words, you know, to use for their, to explain how they're feeling, uh, or make up a word. Like there's no word for how I'm feeling. So I'm going to make one up, you know? Yeah. I also really want to get, uh, some of the little like tools, you know, people make bracelets or little, you know, I don't know, brooches or something. I've seen various forms of these where you can indicate on them how you're feeling oh. when you when you are temporarily not able to speak mm. and i'm i'm trying to think of the exact word cuz i know that the non-speaking autistic community doesn't want people who are only where that happens occasionally they don't want people to say i'm non-speaking cuz that's like a, a a word to describe an identity yes. or like how you are all of the time yes. uh, but i did i have seen a phrase recently that was what the non-speaking community was asking that was, oh, selective mutism. Because mm, okay. that happens to me where it's just like, okay, I'm now, I, I will not be speaking until my body calms down. Like, yeah. And it's usually a good 45 minutes at that point once I reach that point. It also happens to me when I'm overheated. Yes. That's like yes. another thing that sends my body into this just like, and eh, now this is not, we can't do this. Like I have to lay here with an ice pack until, you know, we regain the ability to speak. That that's what threw me into my meltdown this morning. Uh, that we didn't have AC, the humidifiers weren't on. I I felt like I couldn't breathe, and I was and I didn't have words. I was just crying and screaming, pretty much swearing. Um, I might have even said, "What is my life about? Like, what kind of life is this?" I mean, it's going really fast down, uh, and and it the only way I could explain it later to my partner is it's like when you get into a really hot car and the windows are still up and that those seconds before you roll down the windows or before the AC turns on and you, and you can't really breathe and you're just like stuck in the car. Like if the doors were locked and the windows didn't go down and you couldn't turn on, couldn't get the AC, like that's what it feels like. And it's all you can think about while it's happening. Nothing else. No, yeah. it's like death. It's, it's just like you're panicked and 
yeah and the only alternative is like death you don't even know like where do i go where do i go with this and yeah it was like a like escaping but you can't escape if it's your surroundings like where do i go i can't escape my body i can't search for my surroundings and and yeah it's uh uh i'm pretty sure i ran around in circles because i didn't know where to go yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard it's hard yeah i use ice packs a lot that's good. Yeah. Yeah. See, had I been thinking at all, I would exactly. have stuck my head in the freezer, grabbed ice, stuck ice down my shirt. I don't know. I just uh, was not thinking. And so in that case, like, had I had words to say that it's just like too, too hot. Um, you know, maybe my partner could have thrown like an ice pack at me or something, but instead he was like, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? Like, calm down. It's not that bad. I'm like, that made it worse. <laughs> It's, oh, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Like, don't tell me I'm going to be okay. You're such a liar. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know shit. Well, and we've been talking a lot about the autistic stuff, but the ADHD thing, like I really, I really identify with this idea that ADHD time is just now and not now. <laughs> yeah. And so I think you add, you put sensory overload along with this sense of, you know, this present moment being the only thing that exists in some real way and everything else is just sort of nebulously over there. It's really hard to imagine how I might feel in one minute. My brain is just like in this sensory experience, like you were describing, it's just like, this is all there is. Don't tell me I'm going to be okay. I'm not okay right now. Exactly. Yeah. Honoring that. And I, this might feel like a tangent, but I guess in, I guess in theory, there are no tangents if everything is actually connected, but <laughs> When I think about how much shame people with ADHD hold about changing their careers, changing their relationships, changing where they're living, like changing their furniture, like just that constant need for change. And then they hold shame around the fact that there's no continuous thread or that they haven't been consistent or haven't stuck to anything. There's a lot of shame around that, like the gaps in education or the gaps on our resumes. And if we're more kind of fluid and creative about it, like adding a for now or like for right now this is how it is like today i identify as adhd and queer for like for now that feels good uh you know i'm living in maine for now i'm a coach for now like kind of making that really more part of our it's just part of who we are and it's it's a it's a gift and it's a strength but it's also obviously really frustrating sometimes or like i could wake up tomorrow and just not be in the mood to be a coach anymore and then I'll have to try and change my career. I know that could happen. And I so I, it will I'm, happen to me at some point. Right. <laughs> and so if we're locked into the form, if we're locked into like how it looks, like we could still serve people. We could still be passionate about helping neurodivergent people, but it doesn't have to look like coaching. It doesn't have to look like podcasting. Right. And so if we're a little more fluid with that, and I kind of feel like, and I don't know what the words are yet, because I'm literally just saying it out loud for the first time, but I, I feel like that that grace and fluidity needs to be brought into the conversation about ADHD because it's so related to our, how much shame we hold. And it's, uh, and it's so much more, could be more fun, you know, to change and shift and divert. Oh, I love that. I'm so happy that we came back to that because it's back to fun because we were talking about all these kind of like big intense topics. And one of the goals I have with all of my work in which I'm kind of creating stuff for neurodivergent people. Like one of the main things I want to put out there is this is not just about putting your head down and working really hard and everything being really boring and awful and trauma focused until you've healed all your stuff. And then you get to be happy. I'm like, no, I would like us, you know, it's okay to have bad days, but 
my intention with everything I'm putting out there is like, how can we build lives that work for us now so we can feel at least okay now and then build towards something as opposed to, I don't know. I, I just think there's some puritanical bullshit probably behind that idea of what I just said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We often don't give ourselves permission to sit and have fun. We often feel like we have to like produce something before we can, uh, before we are worthy of it or, and I think our idea of what's fun, like I'll sometimes recommend, well, what, could you do something fun like go outside? And I, and I have this delightful, uh, human I work with in, in Hungary. And I think he said something like, I don't like going outside just so you know, like you keep suggesting that I don't like going outside. I'm like, thank you. Like, that's not fun. Sitting on a beach, reading a book for me, not fun. You know, like certain things that the world says are fun and relaxing or leisurely, not fun, leisurely relaxing, especially if you have sensory overload. So like, what is fun? Is it, is it your work? Is it TikTok? Is it knitting? Whatever. Then let's let go of the shame of the expectations of what fun and play looks like, right? Because you're like, well, I don't really ever play. But then you talk to them and and they love research. Like, oh, you know what's really cool is when I think of a word and I'm like, I don't know where that word come from. And I want to like figure that word out, the etymology, is that what's called of a word. Yeah. And they get all lit up and they're all like tingling and they're talking really fast. And I'm like, you look like you're having fun right now. Like, well, research can't be fun. Like, who the who says? Who says, right? And so I don't know. I just I think that's bringing play and fun into our neurodivergent selves um, more than saying a, a game or a sport or an activity that the world thinks is fun. I love that so much. Okay, so let's start wrapping up. And I want to hear from you, and then I'll share what is genuinely fun to you. I mean, you're welcome to list anything, but then also like, especially if you have anything that you feel like is kind of weird. <laughs> but that's fun for you. Weird. Gosh. I mean, um, the first thing that comes to mind is like improvisational, spontaneous conversation like this. Like, I feel like my brain is right now more active and alive than it probably will be the rest of the day. I know that as soon as I'm done, I'll be really sad. This just happens. Like as soon as I'm done with a client or a podcast, there's like, <sighs> now there's nothing to talk about and there's nowhere to go and there's nothing to do and there's no exciting thoughts. There's no creativity and there's no energy. And I'll just be like depressed in an hour, one hour. I'll be like zombie crying mode, just saying. So this is fun. And walking into a new um, like coffee shop and like seeing how they write their menu with colorful chalk on a chalkboard. Ah, like these like little things like that. I find really delightful. I, I can't it. think of anything else at the moment. Yeah. Right. But the question it's happens not, and the mind goes blank. Yeah. It's nothing traditional. <laughs> it's nothing like, like I don't play a sport. I don't, I don't uh, play games. I actually don't like playing games. Like it, the worst thing for me, like my, my son loves to play like mini golf and go laser tag or like, Oh my, like oh. neither. Neither and never and no. no. Yeah, laser tag is, is the worst. Um. <laughs> Kidding me? That's trauma yeah. triggers all over the place. <laughs> Couple of my weird ones. I really like watching live cams of animals that I like. So like there's <laughs> actually there's a great, well, the Audubon Society has a great uh, puffin burrow cam in Maine. Oh, I love puffins. I'm obsessed with them. Yeah. So I'll literally just sit there with like part of my screen having just a puffling in a, in a cave. And that's what I'm watching. It's just this puffling, like occasionally standing up. And every time it stands up, I'm like, ah, 
Yeah. It's like literally one of my special interests is pufflings. I love it. So, yeah. I wonder if like in the middle of the night or when you're having these conversations, you're lying down with your partner and you're tired and you just need like something, but you don't want to get out of bed and you want to like, I wonder if there's some kind of live cam, like, <laughs> like, like that sounds great. Like go to the live when I was often. sleeping alone. I would often have one on all night because I liked the sounds and found it soothing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll listen to if my ruminating or having a lot of intrusive thoughts at night and can't sleep, can't quiet my own fucking breakdown. I will listen <laughs> to um, podcasts uh, of other people talking and uh, as long as they're not telling me to do something, um, you know, then then I'll listen. If it's just like this kind of philosophical conversation, I'm hardly listening to them. But I just need somebody else's voice in my head versus me getting up and watching TV because that that'll stimulate me visually, and then I might not ever go to sleep. So um, yeah, normalizing sleeping in bed with podcasts and TVs and TikToks like and puffins definitely. Yeah, yeah, we got to do it our way in our own time. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Is there anything that from what we've talked about that you were like, oh, I forgot to give this piece of advice or like thing that I want people. Is there anything that you really want people to hear that you feel like we haven't touched on or that you just want to like reiterate? Um, I can't think of anything we haven't touched on because usually I say whatever I think and it comes out of my mouth before I know it. So I, I probably don't have any other new thoughts, but I do want to reiterate that that the the form can change and you can still be doing your work. The thread of your life is continuous. There are no tangents and you're doing all the things. It's just looking different in different forms, but you're still in alignment and still integrated and there's no shame in changing paths and taking U-turns. I love that so much. And besides your podcast, Neuroqueering, what's the best place for people to find you online? Poshamarla.com is my website. And then I'm on TikTok and Instagram at Neuro. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. Thank and you. See you on the internet. All right. Thanks, <laughs> Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. I hope that sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you'd like to go deeper, I invite you to click on the link in the show notes to join my newsletter, where I share more on these topics, point you to community resources and share cute pictures of animals. I only send it when I have something meaningful to say. A friend put it well. With your newsletter, I feel like the predictability is in the quality, not the quantity, and it feels delightfully magical to have it pop up whenever it feels like it. Plus, you can respond directly to me, which I love. That link is in the show notes, or you can easily find it at my website, mattiamarie.com, M-A-T-T-I-A-M-A-U-R-E-E.com. 